Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December the 16th, 2020. This is episode 2794 of the Survival Podcast. And I'm jazzed. I'm jazzed on this one. This will be the last interview of the year. Uh, next week, I'll be doing a short week and then shutting down for the Christmas and New Year holiday. And then I will be back in the new year and I will be raging. If you think I have been turning up the juice since the workshop, you just wait till I get myself a couple weeks of rest, some time away with my wife and my family, and come back in 2021. I'm going to blow your brains out with excitement. I really am. Um, Today, though, we're going we're gonna to talk about really, you know, kind of hardcore how to do things skills from a standpoint of agorism. And we're going to be doing that with one of, one of the coolest guys I've ever met. And he's a, a co-member of the Goose Group over at UnloosetheGoose.com with me on our Wednesday night uh, live streaming and, and podcast, Sal Mayweather. And we're going to be discussing counter-economics today. Uh, Sal's been a practical, uh, practicing counter-economics and a crypto-anarchist and dedicated Rothbardian for a long time. He's the host of the Agora podcast and, uh, and publisher of the new libertarian blog and CEO of his company, or- Agoristics. He's also, again, uh, a co-host of mine over at Unloose the Goost. Really, really great dude, and I'm, I'm excited to have him on here with you guys in just a minute. Before we do, let's start out with a quote of the day today. And I, so I figured since we're having Sal on today, I should uh, quote one of his favorite authors. I don't know if it's the favorite, but it's definitely up there. I hear him quote Mr. Konkin, Samuel Konkin, that is, often. Uh, Samuel Konkin once stated, The counter-economy is the sum of all non-aggressive human action which is forbidden by the state. So everything that you can do that involves two people that the state says you're not supposed to do or not supposed to do in the way that you're doing it is counter-economics. All of it. Even if there's no direct exchange of money because there's exchange of service, there's something of value being transferred when two people do things together. And if the state says you can't do it, then it's counter-economics because it's counter to what is approved and blessed by the God of the state. And, of course, statism is the world's most dangerous religion. And I, I want you to think about what that really, really means. Because I think when, when people say something like this and they don't really think deeply about it, they think about things that are maybe not aggressive, but clearly illegal in a more abrupt sense than it needs to be. So here's an example. If I'm selling you cocaine, right, that's clearly illegal. That's black market, right? And remember, the agorist flag is a black and gray flag, black market, gray market. And that would, that would fall under this definition. It's non-aggressive action forbidden by the state. But what about something that is completely legal but illegal in the way that you're doing it, maybe only in the place that you are? What do I mean by that? Well, what if I'm cutting your hair? What if I'm a completely capable barber, but I do not have a cosmetology license from the state, and I'm cutting your hair? Is that illegal? Is it forbidden by the state? Well, it actually depends on how I do it. If I do it in my own home for my friends and family only, eh, not really. No, it's, it's fine. But if I'm doing it for 
income as a business, I'm supposed to have a license. I'm now committing a crime as far as the state's concerned. But who in their right mind actually considers this criminal activity other than the people who have complied with the law and like the protectionism of it? No one. Would you turn your neighbor in for cutting hair? Some people will. It's been done. It is counter-economics. It's a completely legal activity, but it's being conducted in a manner that's forbidden by the state. What if, you know, you have the ability to cut hair really well and you have a neighbor that's really good as a handyman and you guys are swapping those services? You're not doing it as a business. You don't need a handyman license wherever you're at and you don't need a haircutting license to do it at the level you're doing it at. Is that counter-economics? Well, it depends. Are you reporting that as a gain to the IRS because they say you're supposed to? If the haircut is worth $20 and the work, you know, let's say you do 10 haircuts, 200 bucks worth of haircuts for, for this individual, and, and they do about $200 worth of work around your house and you guys call it even at that point, I, I don't think you run the risk of, of, of Ira Ramon Sancia, initials IRS, coming to get you. But by the letter of the law, do you know that both of you are supposed to report that as though you've been paid $200, even though it's a like-kind exchange? In reality, but they've decided it isn't, it's barter. And barter, both sides are supposed to report the value in barter. The same way you would do is if you came to my house and I cut your hair and you paid me $200 and then you went and worked on my sink and I paid you $200 in cash, if we did that in above-board businesses on the books... Those would both be revenue. It doesn't matter that we both paid money out. Neither one of those is considered an expense by the IRS for our business, right? You don't get to deduct your haircuts as a handyman, and I don't get to get deduct having my personal sink fixed as, 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 as somebody cutting hair on the side, as a side hustle. I'm supposed to report it. See how that works? So immediately, this legal activity goes gray and becomes counter-economics. And this is why I'm such a fan of counter-economics, and I'm, why I'm looking forward to talking about it with Sal. Most people are already doing it in some level, shape, or form. Do you do anything like this in your life? Then you're doing counter-economics. Then you're practicing agorism, and nobody's made you do it. No one, most of you doing it maybe have never even been taught what it was. Or by listening to this show, you know what it is now, and you know you're doing it, but you were doing it before you knew what it was. When I was a kid, one of my first jobs was I worked for a guy named Muskrat Purcell. I pulled parts off cars. He paid me cash money. That was agorism. And my uncles and their friends who were all Democrats and thought the rich should pay their fair share and thought there should be more taxes and more government, you know what they all said? Attaboy. Getting paid under the table. Attaboy. Good boy. Good on, good on you. Yeah, Muskrat, he'll take care of you. Just do a good job for him. He'll, his money's green. He'll take care of you. They had no problem with it. Why? Because they were, they were in their hearts agorists. This is why I think it is the thing to help move humanity forward. Because it is the only ism that I'm aware of that people naturally practice under almost all circumstances. There is agorism in prison, and in the freest economies that you can find, There are still agorists. And so you now have something that requires no compulsion, no force, that just happens with no one imposing it on another person. In fact, the more you interfere with it, the more it happens. The more you interfere with free trade, the more 
backdoor free trade, gray market free trade occurs. That's an innate human condition. That's innately what we are. And with that, I think it's a great time to transition into our interview. I'd like to welcome our special guest, Sal Mayweather, to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Sal, how you doing today, man? Good, Jack. Thanks for having me. What's up? I, I am glad to have you. I was just telling folks, you know, if they haven't been checking out Unloose the Goose, they need to do that because uh, you're one of my co-hosts over there, but also that they need to be checking out your podcast called The Agora, uh, which is, I think, fantastic, But uh, and a lot of people do know who you are, but you want to just give people kind of the elevator speech on who is Sal Mayweather and how'd you get to where you are today? Oof, yeah, so um, I was always sort of a constitutionalist kind of guy, and you know, Ron Paul turned me into a more radical libertarian, and eventually I read Rothbard and Konkin, and uh, I... Really, I went to Porkfest about five years ago. I think you know the story. And I learned 3D printing and I learned how to use crypto and exchange and precious metals and aquaponics and all sorts of stuff. And I, I connected the dots and realized that I was doing agorism and counter-economics. So um, I eventually developed a social media following. I figured, well, if I'm going to promote uh, some particular political ideology must, must, might as well be the one I believe in <laughs> and that was how uh, Sal Yagoras was born and, and tell us a little bit up front here about your uh, your podcast uh, The Agora, what's, what's that all about? So that's just basically, we do two things there it's, it's theory and counter-economics I remember reading somewhere along the lines where Konkin said something like agorism is just, you know, you take some logic and some revisionist history and some economics and you stir it up in a pot and boom, you have agorism. So those are really the three topics I try to stick to is history, counter economics and, and economics. But uh, it's really just to promote and, you know, educate people on what agorism is and what counter economics is and how they can engage in it too. So let's start off with uh, – Agorism itself. Why? Why is that yeah. kind of the the place that you anchor your position in? Well, because it's the only thing that makes sense, right? It, it's you know it, we we can go vote for freedom, but that's that doesn't that doesn't work. It's a contradiction in terms, right? Uh, you know, there's all these sort of convoluted uh, strategies and different ways to approach the state, but the only one that's ever actually worked is counter economics. Uh, you know, violent solutions will change governments, but counter-economics eradicates them. And we see this with Gandhi and what he did with Satyagraha, and he brought the British Empire to their knees without ever raising a fist. Uh, we see it in uh, the Soviet Union. The Russians were able to kick the communists out with Nalevo or black market entrepreneurship. Uh, you know, I, I know uh, CJ was just talking about that documentary on uh, Amazon Prime in, in the Goose Chat. I don't know if you had a chance to catch it. But that's a great example of how sort of uh, counter-economic entrepreneurship will subvert and undermine the state. So that's really where uh, where we're coming from on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, I think I did well with our quote of the day because I uh, I chose a uh, a quote by Conklin, and I said I think I think he's either your favorite or one of your favorite uh, authors oh, yeah. of all time, and you've mentioned him three times. So I pulled that off yeah. well. But and I talked about this quote going in. But this was our quote of the day, and I think you'll like it. The counter-economy is the sum of all non-aggressive human action, which is forbidden by the state. Everything. Right. And, and so that's not just, I do something for you for money. It's anything that we exchange, uh, because that's a value-for-value value exchange. And that 
people would think of that and say, like, well, if Jack sells Sal cocaine, that's that would be, uh, you know, forbidden by the state and non-aggressive. And it's true, but that's kind of an overt black market. Like the, the example I gave is like, if and I wouldn't, I would not recommend you do this. But if you came here and you let my wife cut your hair. And we lived in a place where it says she's supposed to have a license and be a licensed cosmetologist. That would actually be agorism because course, she's yeah. doing something she's not supposed to do, whether you paid us or not. And, and, and kind of what I pointed out and kind of what you were hitting on there is it is the only thing that makes sense. And the reason I, I agree with that is because it is the only you know ism that I can actually look at and say this thing occurs constantly between humans – with no imposition whatsoever, and the more you impose against it, the more of it you get. Like you mentioned the Soviet Union, I remember being a kid, like I was like 14 or 15, and uh, John Stossel doing a report on the Soviet Union and showing how much, uh, you know, he didn't use the word, but agorism was going on there. And they were actually in, in Russia, and he was holding up money to get a taxi, And, like, friggin' taxis were just zooming past him like he wasn't there. So he held up a pack of Marlboros, and a friggin' taxi near, you know, ran him over, pulling over yeah. to pick him up. And, and that's kind of what I've always pointed out about agorism, when people object to it. It's like, but you probably do it. Well, that, see, that's the whole thing. I mean, if you, if you really think about it, and not to get too deep on you, but <clears throat> if you think about, like, the whole the general state of affairs, the way the world is, right, the total collection of facts in existence, that's just another word for the economy. That's just the way things are. That's, that's the agora. That's agorism. And, you know, the key word there is, is what you were, the way Konkin defined it in the quote of the day is voluntary, right? So anything that's not voluntary is not part of agorism. So things like taxation or uh, licensure, that stuff is not voluntary, right? So that, that is uh, part of the red or the pink market. So that's, that's not part of agorism. And to me, it is uh, it, it's incredibly damaging, these, these concepts of having to be licensed to do something, permitted to do something, because the person who you would think would have the most opposition to it would be the person who wants to do it. And it's true right up until that person becomes credentialed in whatever manner by the state, because then it becomes protectionist. So, like... Right. You probably won't rat out your neighbor if they're running a barber shop out of their garage, right? And I won't either. And most decent people wouldn't. But you know who's most likely to do it? The cosmetologist or beautician that's paying their tribute to the state and then sees you as circumventing their protectionism. So this whole licensure control mechanism actually converts the people who should be most in opposition to it into allies like who like i can't remember the guy's name but remember the guy that got choked to death in new york for selling loose cigarettes garner yeah eric right garner, yeah. eric garner right well who called the cops the guy with the, the, the convenience store that was paying his tribute and selling highly taxed cigarettes who was being circumvented that's who called the cops not some guy that bought two lucy's from for two bucks or whatever Right. And we see the same thing with, uh, you know, with Uber. Who's, who's going after Uber? Who's pressuring the California state government to take down Uber? It's the taxi cartels, right? It's the people who've gotten extorted to pay those, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for a medallion. So you're right. It's cronyism. It's, it's absolutely the case. And it's, it, 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 to me, it also kind of comes up under something that I put out yesterday on statism. Statism is that, just like I said, the belief that the only way you can provide people the services they both want and need 
is by forcing those same people into purchasing them. That, that's the yeah, entire absolutely. statist argument, isn't it? Like, people need right. this and want it, but we have to make them buy it or they won't have it. And, you know, a great example of how agorism fixes this, right, agorism solves this, is look at, like, what we're doing with tokenization, specifically the tokenization of securities and assets and how we have all of these uh, licensed, uh, FINRA-licensed brokers, right? If you want to buy a stock or a bond, you have to go through a FINRA-licensed broker. Well, now that you can tokenize your own securities and assets uh, using common everyday tools found on the Internet, well, now you don't need to go through those licensed brokers. And now there's an economic incentive not to go through those brokers because you don't have to pay those exorbitant, exorbitant fees to compensate for, you know, the licensure. So there's an economic incentive not to participate in these state systems. And that's the, the power of agorism is that, you know, we always debate how do we convince people? How are we going to get people into the agorist fold? Well, we don't really have to, right? That'll happen naturally. People are, are, will be inclined to participate in the counter economy just vis-a-vis -vis economic incentive alone. Yeah. I mean, and if you look at, you know, the cost and it's not just brokerage, it's compliance fees, right? So I have a, a good friend's long since passed away, but he had a, a technology resale company back in the nineties when that was a hot sector to be in. And he took his company public and he said it was the worst decision that he ever made. And they, and it was a fairly small company to go public. They were not on like Dow or NASDAQ. They were like on the OTC big board type thing, but they were spending a minimum of a quarter million dollars a year just for compliance, just for compliance. That's, that's a, and now what do you think compliance cost is to someone that's being traded on Dow Jones? It, it, it's got to be, and that, that, again, that's 30 years ago, right? So multiply that by 10 at least just for a small company. And so today companies can do this kind of equity share or security exchange and do it right in front of everybody, yet under the table at the same time in a way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, there's a great little uh, uh, talk by Patrick Byrne called the tech stack for the future, where he goes over all of this and, and he describes exactly how we're going to uh, end all of this. And it, it's all it's all about tokenization and blockchain technology. Um, and it's not just confined to securities and assets, right? Everything is going to be tokenized. Uh, and, and that's one of the things I really push on the Agora is, is tokenization. And I encourage people to get involved with like simple ledger protocol and ERC 20 tokens because, you know, especially now today that we're recording right now, Bitcoin's at an all time high and people are always talking about, well, I'm too late. I'm too late. <laughs> well, if you want to be, if you want to get in on blockchain, uh, get in on tokenization because you're at, you want to talk about the ground floor. This is, this is like getting involved in Microsoft in 1990. And I think, uh, You know, the people who start to, to tokenize their businesses today, those are going to be the ones who, the, the sort of nobility or the landed class of, of tomorrow. Well, and I also kind of look at the, the crypto space and say, you know, Bitcoin is version 1.0, right? It's almost version 0.1, really. Right, and there's yeah. so much opportunity in just other crypto assets. And to me, everything's moving toward privacy crypto. And yet on Bitcoin, like, I still think, I know there's a lot of people that I guess are like they call a maximalist that only believe in Bitcoin. And then there's people that like hate Bitcoin because it's terrible as money. I'm in the camp of, yeah, I don't I don't have an ideology here. I think for a long time to come, 
Bitcoin will probably be the intermediary, the kind of reserve crypto that things can go back into and have you know some uh, ability to be exchanged and funged into other cryptos. So it's useful. And when people say, well, like it's at an all-time high, all the opportunity's gone. These are the same people that said the same thing in 2018 when it was up around 19,20,000 and didn't buy any when it went down to three. Right, so like I, I only have so much time for that portion of the audience. I've also tried to be like really cautious. Like, yes, it's an all-time high, and you know, being someone that's been in the crypto market since 2014, I kind of gotten used to this up and down shit. With there's some crypto that's set aside right. that I don't care what that happens. Please be careful. Don't go, you know, put money into this you can't afford to lose right now. But to me, like Bitcoin's like a gateway, and it's how you're going to get yourself into most other things that are available in crypto. And um, it's an incredible tool, and all of the things we're doing today that are beyond it, we owe back to it and the fact that it was done in the first place. Yeah, 100%. But I, I do think you're right about uh, the move to privacy. I think that, that that's going to be a key, especially in the years to come as the state becomes more oppressive and they, they start to censor more transactions. You're going to see people more and more people will need a sort of peer-to-peer -peer currency. And that's the whole utility of, of Bitcoin. And, you know, that's why I think a lot of this price action is, it's a lot of it is just speculation, to be frank. Um, it's not really based on fundamentals. It's not a very, it's sort of an old clunky blockchain. It's like the Model T of, mm -hmm. of cryptocurrencies, right? Uh, you know, and a lot, I think a lot of these maximalists are sort of the ones out there saying, well, Chrysler and Pontiac, they're going to be around forever, right? And that, you know, that, it'd be like saying the same thing in 1970. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, one one day someone's going to come out with Tesla, right? And we don't yeah. know who that's going to be just yet, but you know, it, it, it's coming. Well, and in the Bitcoin is more like the Model T. That no matter how much you improve it, it's it, you could say Ford, but it's still the Model T. Like it's not like right. today you have like a Ford Mustang. So like I don't think if Bitcoin's a Model T, it can become a Mustang. Right? You have to actually build a totally different vehicle if you want a Mustang or a Maserati or a Lamborghini. You have to build a different tool. And to me, again, privacy is really where it's all at because to me, privacy is what enables all the things we want to do. And it's why right. I, I feel like there's a war on privacy, right? Like if you want to control people, the first thing you must do is strip their privacy because if they have privacy, you don't know what the hell they're doing, so you can't stop them. And I think even privacy coins, even people that still want to use, you know, let's say a non-privacy crypto, it's the privacy coins that will enable that to be private, at least for the side that wants to be private, because I can, for instance, take Bitcoin, move it into pirate chain, and then go through a decentralized exchange and move it back into Bitcoin. And now you know I sent that to a, a Z address that's encrypted, but you can't see it anymore. It's gone. And we're you know we're moving to like Monero's doing atomic swaps, pirates working on something that's going to be beyond what Monero does with atomic swaps, and you're going to have this ability to conduct public business privately, which is I, well, the way I put it in my video this morning was it's a arms race that for the first time society over the state has the advantage. Yeah, um, I would also say that another problem with the Model T or these old clunky blockchains, not only privacy, um, but, you know, if, you, if you're too congested to process normal everyday transactions, mm -hmm. the network is too congested for that, then how are you going to add on all these tokenization features that we're speaking about, right? 
forget about it. You can't even go down that road. If you can't handle, if you can't process normal transactions, then you can't process, you know, securities and assets and stuff like that. So that's another aspect of it um, that I would add. One of the problems, I think, one of the challenges, I should say, that a lot of these privacy coins are facing is, is adoption. Right. It's very easy for me to go out and spend Bitcoin, Ethereum or Bitcoin Cash or Litecoin. It's not very easy to accept Monero or some of these other coins in uh, in commerce precisely because the regulators have such a, a keen eye on it because they're private. Right. Uh, I think Coinbase, like they're not allowed to they were allowed to. Uh, I think they're allowed to offer Zcash or something like that, but not Monero precisely. Oh, you, you can trade. You can trade for Monero right now in in, in Coinbase. You can buy but, uh, instantly. Yeah. 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 I don't know if it's okay. instant, okay. but you yeah. can buy it. But I mean, I I don't think that it really like it, to me. If you're running a website and you're using Coinbase to accept, accept crypto, that's the wrong answer anyway. Like you should be running like if you're running a WordPress site, there's WordPress plugins. You set up your addresses and you're you're your own bank on receiving too. I I have a real concern when people are running their their business transactions through th something like a Coinbase. You might as well be using PayPal. Well, whenever you're not holding your keys, they're not your coins, right? Correct. So it, whatever whatever goes to Coinbase, get it out as soon as possible. I know it's very convenient for a lot of people. Um, They do make things super easy, but they're heavily KYC'd, and, and they're going to turn you over to to the tax man in April. So, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, and no, like there are specific requirements that a customer meets before they're reported by Coinbase. I still wouldn't use them as my merchant account, if that makes sense. It's it's less about keys, and it's more about process. So, why would I receive to Coinbase when I can receive to my own wallet? Does that make sense? Like, why would I put an intermediary yeah. in there at all? Like, that's we're, we're kind of a little off topic there, but just since we are, let, that, that's where I'm at with that. Like, I don't, I don't receive my payments through Coinbase. Period. I just don't do it. You know, um, and I look at this. Anything I do in Coinbase, I follow the letter of the law because it's right, yeah. it could, if it's not public, it could be. So just because Coinbase won't report me because my transactions there are not sufficient to trigger a 1099 miscellaneous or 1099K, um, if I were to be looked at and they were to subpoena Coinbase and say, we want this guy shit, they would probably get it, and then it would all be there. So there's gray market, black market, and white market, I guess. And in the white market, I think you play by their rules or you can get hurt. Right. Well, the one thing I will I will give uh, the Winklevi credit for is, you know, For all the terrible things Coinbase is involved in, they, they have done a lot to promote adoption. They've, you know, I, probably no one has done more to distribute cryptocurrency to people in the world than, the, than Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss. So they have done that, and I'm thankful for that. But I, I agree with you 100%. I, I don't trust them as far as I could throw them. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about that. Like, how can people engage in counter economics and, and agorism and do so safely where they don't end up in club fed or something like that? Right. Of course. Yeah. That, that's the most common question, right? So I've, I've developed three simple principles or three simple tenets that people can follow to sort of get started with agorism in a safe way. Number one is grow your own food. Number two, become your own bank and get a 3d printer. So those are the three basic things. I think If you can do those three things, uh, you're, you're off to a good start. You're not necessarily Sam Conkin yet, but you're, you're off to a good start. I do think it's important to combine those things 
with some element of entrepreneurship. And if you could do that, then you're, you, you'll be a very successful counter-economist. I, and I think like the other thing that I caution people with, and I think we've both seen this and, and the rest of the team has that unloose the goose, is don't go out and try to do something illegal just because you want to defy the state. Right, it's almost like you're in a backwards mindset. You know, we've seen some of that. Like, I want to be the chorus, so what can I? You know, like, hold on. Like, think about the value you can provide, and then think about how to provide that value in a way that makes sense, and yet writes others out of the equation. Cryptocurrency is just one way to do that. If you, if you do get your 3D printer, I mean, one of the first things I would do is let your friends and family know that you have one. And kind of key them in on all the cool things that it can do, and then you might just find that you have some form of a market without even asking, because oh shit, you have this thing that makes stuff, right? And then it can expand from there depending on how you want to handle it. Well, you know, Per Bylands, and I think we've spoken about this on the Goose a couple of times, but Per Bylands uh, has he wrote an article a while back. I think it was like 15 years ago, where he really sort of analyzes counter-economics. And he divides it into two sort of strategies. And the first is uh, the creation of local production facilities. So you can think like a 3D printer or a garden or a blockchain miner, right? These are producing something in a local fashion. So that's the first aspect of counter-economics. The second aspect is just voluntary peer-to-peer trade. And if you can combine those two things, that's a very, very powerful thing that Really, you're, you're, it's very difficult for the state to stop something like that. If you can make something and, and distribute it in a voluntary fashion, there's no politician around that, that can prevent that in the long run. No, I, 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 and I, I would just say that if anybody that doubts that, then you need to like crack a history book because the world is full of examples of it being impossible. Um, whenever anybody says, well, we'll just make this illegal, I'll be like, you know, that, that, that's what we did with drugs, and now we don't have any more of those, right? Like, yeah. like it, it, it's almost unbelievable to me that you have to convince people of this at this point in history. Like, clearly, the idea that the state can just shut down commerce for anything is a ridiculous thing to assert because we have commerce in federal prison. People are searched every day. Everything that goes in and out is searched. Um There's stiff penalties for noncompliance, and yet, you know, you have an entire monetary system developed in prison around things like cigarettes, stamps, and ramen noodles. Like, those are your three big currencies in prison, apparently. I mean, I've been, I don't have firsthand experience with this, but that's what I'm told, right? And, and so, if you can't prevent the exchange of value for value in prison, How are you going to prevent the exchange of value for value in anything approaching a free society? And one of the things that society has going for it is if you want society to be protected, productive enough to benefit the elite class, there has to be some level of freedom. Like you can't have a 100% imposed prison in society and get production out of it. Like it just, there's a point where it's like uh, in dairy, like if you, if you abuse a cow enough, it won't give you milk anymore. Well, and that's, that's of course, that's how, how these states collapse, right? That's how the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc collapsed. They just essentially, they milked the cow until it, there was no milk left, right? That's, that, and that, that's, that's how all states will implode, right? They all collapse in on themselves. It goes back to Rome, right? Look at what's happening today with the, with the Federal Reserve. 
uh, printing themselves into oblivion and the regulations on, on civil liberties, all of these things, it's just, it's just an inner collapse, right? It's very easy for the state. Most states collapse from internal pressure rather than external pressure, I guess is what I'm trying to say. No, that's absolutely the case. And, and if it is anything external, it's like a market force external pressure that shows people what they could have. So, like, if you look at the Cold War, what really killed the Soviet Union through their internal pressure was Reagan escalating capitalism. Like, he's not my favorite person by a long shot, but in the end, we just simply outspent them. And, and, and they got yeah. to a point where they didn't have the resources to keep up anymore. And the way their satellite states ended up independent was they just, they literally couldn't afford to prevent like Ukraine or Lithuania or Georgia from doing their own thing anymore. Like, we, 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 we can't do this. We like, it's not that we don't want to. It's not that we don't have the political will to do so. It's not that we're not willing to do what's necessary. It's just it doesn't, it no longer makes economic sense. It's like a company declaring bankruptcy. Like, this is our only legitimate play to kind of, reform and come back as another entity now that that was the decision there was nothing in like moral or ethics about it it wasn't that you know the leaders of the soviet union at the time weren't willing to shoot people it's that it no longer would get them what they wanted i'm telling you if you haven't had a chance yet and i'm not this isn't a paid promo or anything like that check out um chuck norris versus communism that oh, yeah. pj recommended to us a couple weeks back yeah Wow. I mean, I was blown away. It's all about how, uh, you know, Western cinema infiltrates in the black and gray markets and it sort of changes the populace and it changes their opinion on so many things. It's really incredible. And it just goes to show you how powerful. I mean, just a simple thing like, like a, a VHS can take down yeah. an entire government. That's the power of the free market. You know, and that's, it's the power of agorism. It happens everywhere. So you, it was happening over there because things were censored and controlled and unavailable. But it, you know the same thing happens here. My my son, for instance, when Netflix actually sent you DVDs, you remember way back then, you yeah. you'd get oh, like yeah. two DVDs and you you watch them and you send them back and they sent you two more. So he snaps at this real quick, figures out how to decrypt DVDs, and starts making copies. Well, once you make a copy, you can make another copy, another copy, another copy. He had basically a whole side business selling DVDs through his through his job as a bartender, and and you know I mean it lasted as long as that service from Netflix lasted. It lasted as long as people gave a shit. Like, because people don't give a shit about DVDs anymore. I think if you're selling DVDs, you're not under, like, it's like selling cassette tapes in 2005. Like, it really doesn't. Sure, you can still make it work, but it doesn't really make sense. And um, so it happens everywhere. And I'm back to, a, you know, this, this entire concept of the Agora, it exists as a human condition. And, and to me, that's what makes it so powerful. And notice how, like, something as simple as uh, your son selling, uh, you know, DVDs or something, notice how that pushes the market to find a more efficient solution and say, all right, well, you know what, now we're going to go digital. Yeah. Right? That's how it works. That's how the market sort of always finds the most efficient allocation of scarce resources. I think that's the way Tom Sowell puts it. So that, that's what economics is, and that's really what agorism is. And, you know, another way I put this to people is counter, a counter-economist's job is to solve problems created by politicians. And it's really sort of saying the same thing, just in different words, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the things I know you're big on is 3D printing, so let's kind of shift gears into that for a bit. What exactly about 3D printing really makes it suited to counter-economics? Well, we're, again, we're, we're creating solutions to problems created by politicians. Um, 
there are no gun-free zones anymore. Wherever, wherever there is a 3D printer, there is no gun-free zone. They're, they're done. They're, they're, they're dead. It's a thing of the past. It's, it's gone. Um, you know, I, we, we sell 3D printers to all parts of the world, but it really makes me happy to see them sold to places like New York and New Jersey and California and Washington and Massachusetts. Um, because, you know, that's what freedom is about. And that, to me, that is, that is agorism. That's counter-economics. And, you know, the more people that have a 3D printer, you know, I, I guess the best way I can put it is if we can get a 3D printer into every home, then all of these laws become merely just bad suggestions, right? No one has to listen anymore if we're all very well armed. They can only enforce this stuff if the population is disarmed. That's how they get away with oppressing these urban populations like Chicago and New York so much with oppressive taxation and regulation and licensure. They do it because they're armed or because they've been disarmed. They don't do that to the people of Texas or Florida, right? No. It's only these populations <laughs> where there's no where there's no guns. And I think that that's really the key to 3D printing. It's not the only counter-economic aspect, but that's really the key to uh, to, to 3D printing. You know, and I, I, I'm, I'm big on not engaging in false bravado, like, we'll shoot their ass or whatever, but it is interesting to me that the facts are pretty, pretty straightforward that the more armed a state is, the less the government locked people down. That is, that is an observable fact that every state that is under severe lockdowns is, is fairly restrictive. I guess the exception would be Washington. Washington is a left-leaning state, but they have fairly ease of ability to own and carry a gun. Um, but it's the states that people don't exercise the right, whether it's there or not, where people like smash windows and burn shit down, right? Like that's and it's the parts of the states that even if you couldn't do could do it, don't do it that it happened in. And so when I look at something like Fort Worth and Dallas. When all the BLM protests happened this summer, there wasn't a window broken. I mean, there wasn't a window broken. And that is a dramatic difference. And especially like Fort Worth and Dallas are very different cities. People think they're the same. On the Fort Worth side, they picked their trash up. And our, our mayor down here, Betsy Price, basically told people, if you do this in Texas, they can shoot you. And I think if a politician knows that you have the right to shoot somebody breaking into your business, that you just might be willing to shoot them too, if it comes down to it. Well, an armed society is a plate society, right? I mean, <laughs> that's not. I, I'm with you though. I, I yeah. don't believe in you know the, the false bravado and stuff. No. like that. I don't. I don't think. It, it, I don't think it, it's a. It's a viable solution to go out and have a gunfight with politicians. That's not going to work out well. For no. People. That's I do think it's a deterrent, though. I think that the fact that they know it could happen, they they think more about what they do. Like, oh, absolutely. Um, I think Stanford did a Stanford Law Review published an article a while back where they said that the for every year that a right to carry law is in effect, the violent crime rate drops by like one and a half to two point three percent yearly, and that uh, translates into like a two to three billion dollars savings for the taxpayer annually. So guns help, of course, but. Yeah. I'm not saying go out and, and do anything violent. That's not yeah. a worrisome. What I'm saying is have a 3D printer in your house so that when they come, after the buy, after the mandatory buybacks, after they come door to door and they've confiscated your weapons, it doesn't matter. You don't have to die in a shootout because let them take your guns. By the time they sweep your neighborhood clean, you could have 15 more. That's the power of 3D printing, right? That That's what makes it 
such a powerful thing. That's why the state is going after uh, Cody Wilson, and, and that's why they're so threatened by it. Well, and so you mentioned places like New York and New Jersey, but I don't know if you've seen the – there's like kind of a YouTube mini-documentary where this guy – It's it, you can tell it's either it's either Germany or Holland um, that the guy goes into, and you know the guy's in a mask so that no one can see who he is, and he won't reveal the exact location to protect the guy's identity, but he's like – This this well known kind of like techno 3D hacker guy online and like they're over there in Europe where their laws on guns are so much more restrictive than anything we have in the most restrictive jurisdictions in the United States and they're like printing fully automatic SBRs and shit so like if you can't stop that in Holland or Germany or anywhere in Europe you ain't stopping it in Georgia. Well, well, that's the whole thing, right? Where everybody thinks 3D printed guns. Well, do they really last? The thing is going to blow up in your hand. And, you know, when we're, when we're talking about the Liberator, you know, back five, six years ago, sure, yeah, that probably wasn't the safest gun around, but it was, you know, a proof of concept essentially. Now, uh, you know, Ivan the Troll and the folks at the Turnip Dispensed have created. Uh, they figured out how to rifle a barrel in your kitchen sink. And you know that doesn't not, that doesn't even disintegrate me. You know, in America, look, you can go out, you can buy, buy a gun, you know, yeah. parts for your gun. No problem. Yeah, it's not even a problem, really. But in Europe, you can't do that stuff. So, gun control is not just dead in America; it's dead around the whole world. And I, I think that's that, that's a, a great thing for freedom. And I mean, in the end, it's 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 completely legal to build guns in the United States. You you can build a gun yeah. in the United States. Like there's there's certain things you're supposed to do and not supposed to do, but. You can build a gun, so now we're back to more of a gray market activity in some ways as well. So there's there's always that. Um, let's talk a little bit though, because I know you've you've mentioned, and, and I want to know more about this. How about 3D printers combined with smart contracts? Wh where, where does that take us? Yeah, so this is this is huge. I think this is really the future. Um, Of, of manufacturing in general, right, is the whole uh, interfacing with 3D printing because now we're going down the road of, like, Internet of Things. And this is, like, extremely powerful. Um, you know, instead of going to, uh, you know, Walmart.com and buying, uh, I don't know, a set of coasters or some little contraption, now you can just download the file and you'll get a notification on your phone. Once the uh, object is complete, you walk down to your printer downstairs or whatever, and there it is. And that, to me, is very powerful because now we're, we're disintermediating the entire manufacturing industry, not just the arms manufacturing industry, but the entire sector. And that, I think, is, is very powerful. Any way we can, uh, you know, get around these legacy institutions, I think, is good. These legacy corporations, I think we're all going to be better off. I'm a big proponent of doing things yourself. So any way we could do that, I think, is, is a plus. Well, and I don't even think we've begun to see what 3D printers are going to be able to do for us yet from even a design and development standpoint uh, of, of, you know, kind of techno nerds and what they can come up with because the young generation hasn't been unleashed yet, right? It's all like older millennials and younger Gen Xs are all the people into this right now. And it, it makes me think like we were the kids, you're a little younger than me, but my generation, we were the kids with Commodore 64s and we were the ones when we got cut loose in the 90s With the, the evolving tech, we did all this shit. We made all this shit happen. I, I think that's still not yet there for 3D printing. Like It's going to be kids like my grandson that grow up with it, that they're going to do shit we, we're not even thinking about yet. They're going to be, oh, wait, could you see this? And then the technology itself is going to evolve, 
And then other technologies fit so well with it that are also technologies that can use a soft product to make a hard product, like CNC. So we're getting to a point where a person with you know, maybe a CNC machine and, and maybe some old school tools like a metal lathe and a few things like that, along with a 3D printer in a one-car garage, is a manufacturing facility that's empowered by the design capability of other people that are 10,000 miles away and could send that design information in literal seconds. And like, I never really thought about how that plays with smart contracts, but yeah, it does. <laughs> a big one. I mean, I mean, you know, there's so much to be said here. I mean, if you think about it, really the, the code, right? An STL file is just a code and a code is speech. So now, you know, they can't regulate any sort of anything that can be put into a code. There, you can't have a physical object be censored anymore. It's done. The whole concept is out the window. But, you know, going back to what you just said about, you know, how things progress, you're absolutely right. I, I think it is the future generations that are going to bring this technology into, you know, its, its true being. We've already seen uh, the technology advance so quickly, right? When we talk about 3D printing, everybody assumes we're discussing, you know, the normal 3D printers that you see on, on 60 Minutes or something with yeah. a hot metal nozzle extruding a piece of plastic onto a build plate one layer at a time. Well, Soon after, now, we've got resin printers, which are able to produce really much more higher resolution and higher speeds. But even that is quickly becoming outdated, right? And now we're moving into, I don't know if you've ever heard of five-axis printing, but now we have sort of these nozzles on robotic arms that can move, you know, almost 360 degrees around an object. I mean, the technology is advancing so quickly, it's difficult for even somebody in the industry to to stay up to date. So we're not really sure what the final version of this manufacturing process looks like yet, but it's already extremely promising. It's already very disintermediative, so it's definitely promising. You know, and a lot of people have bounced around the ideas of like a libertarian compound or libertarian community or something like that. I don't know if it ever will be pulled off, but I, I'm beginning to believe if it ever is pulled off, the housing will be built with 3D printing, uh, 3D printed concrete or, or air crete or something like that. Like that will be the thing. Like, you know, you get your, 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 uh, your new, uh, piece of property inside libertarian town and you, you order your, your freaking house. And the shell is done in you know less than a week, and it's it's a solid concrete structure. Um, that is the, the technology for that already exists, and I think it's only a matter of time before somebody worth like a billion or half a billion dollars or something builds one. Like the, the the whole place is designed to go that way, and there are places in our country you could do that where all the code problems and shit just go like they don't exist. Like where I'm at. And I'm not, you know, you you, know, you haven't been here because you, you, you punked out and didn't come. That's right. Um, <laughs> if, if you had come here, you would know that I'm not that far away from town. Like, Fort Worth is a 20-minute drive. And I don't have any building codes at all where I'm at. So there's lots of places like that. And I think it would be just badass to see, like, well, how many bedrooms do you want? And I think that is both for our side and for everybody, kind of the future of construction. Well, wait until these printers. Right now, you can get a printer that can print a house for a couple hundred thousand dollars. That's sure. not even a whole bunch of money. That's, that's no. you know, it's not exactly cost prohibitive. No. Uh, as, but, you know, as the time goes on, that price will come down, right? Yeah. Goods, luxury goods eventually become, uh, you know, 
commodity. Goods for the general public. Yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. They become more affordable as time goes on. So those printers, I mean, imagine you have a huge piece of property, and now you can pick up one of those printers for $10,000. Now you can make whatever structure you can dream of, right? That, that's that's where we're headed. That's the future of, of manufacturing, and I, I think it's really exciting. I think we're going to be printing, like, built-in furniture and shit. Like, you know, if you want a countertop, concrete's a pretty good material. I mean, you could, you could literally yeah. print a house that everything is there except the appliances in the furniture, I mean, right? I mean, like, that's that's where we're headed. Like, even cabinetry, basically, you put wood doors on and your your cabinet, like, the kind of stuff that's that's being done. And then you have a, a, an indestructible home. We can we can and print you know, pathways and spaces like I'm an old. We were talking before you got on. We got on live. Um, I'm an old school comms guy, so I always think data cabling, electrical cabling, and stuff like you can print the pathways and spaces into the structure. That that's that's it, it's almost inconceivable what can be done with today's tech. And on like when you said you're going to be able to you know buy a machine that'll do it for ten thousand, I'm sure there's people like sure whatever. What do you think I paid for a Commodore sixty four in nineteen eighty four compared right. to what you can buy like a bad ass PC today for like off Tiger Direct or something? You know you can buy like a machine that's almost top of the line for five hundred bucks. You couldn't buy a Commodore sixty four with everything you needed to actually use it for five hundred bucks in nineteen eighty five. It couldn't be done. I had to. I had to push a lot of lawnmowers to save up half the money to get my dad to come up with the other half, right? So I know how expensive that shit was back then. You move that to today's money, and you know a Commodore sixty four in today's money, I guess, would probably cost about three thousand dollars. And so your number of going the other way with a commodity is is historically accurate. Yeah, no doubt. And not only that, but we've only, we've only mentioned, uh, you know, firearms and housing, but, you know, the applications for 3D printing are sort of endless, right? We can, um, there's people printing organs. There's scientists printing ears and, uh, you know, body parts. Um, you know, they take a mesh and they use, they print cells out of a 3D printer and then that grows into a body part. I mean, there goes the FDA regulation. Mm. There's people, uh, printing food. Right, you can buy 3D printers that print really exquisite chocolate pastries and stuff like that. The the possibilities are absolutely endless. You can use graphene to print electrical circuits. I mean, it, it really is. Uh, it's a, again, like we were saying with blockchain, like how we're we're still sort of in the infancy of all of this. It's the same thing with 3D printing and additive manufacturing. We're just in like the baby stages. Well, and then like. The the speed of development and capability now, if somebody has an idea, oh, is is off the charts. Like, so think of something that yeah. seems totally unrelated to anything we talked about. Something like beekeeping. So if a beekeeper comes up with a concept that, hey, I think this particular cell size in a bee frame with this particular thing would would produce more resilient bees. It may or may not work, but what would it have taken to build that frame? 20 years ago, right? $20,000 worth of injection molding fees to China, right? Where, where this person can literally sit down if they have some basic design skills and know right away this either works or it doesn't. The bees hate it, the bees like it, but it doesn't change anything. One season and it's, it's proof of concept done. And then if it works, he can make as many as he wants. Like, and, and so you, if it'll work for bees, like, what, what, what won't it do? Because we're going to be able to print, like you were mentioning some other materials, we're going to be able to print with metal. That, that, that'll be a thing, too. 
I mean, like, I don't see much that we won't be able to print in the future. It's sort of amazing if you think about how far agorism has come in, like, the last 15 years, 20 years. I mean, 20 years, but we didn't have 3D printers. We didn't have blockchains. We didn't have, we didn't have half of these things. We didn't, we didn't know what a token was, you know? <laughs> so to me, it really is, I mean, well, 10 don't years, imagine. 10 years ago, right, there was the an episode of a show years. called The Big Bang Theory. Yeah, if you've ever yeah. seen it or heard of it, though they they yeah, got yeah. together and they bought a 3D printer, which is not even the one in the in the show's not even as good as what you sell now for under five hundred dollars. It cost them five grand, and it was an accurate assessment of the market. So ten years ago, a, an inferior machine was five grand. Today, it's under five hundred bucks. Oh yeah, my first printer I bought for twelve hundred dollars. The one I run now is like I think it's like two fifty. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, that's what I mean. Luxury goods become more widely available. So hopefully the whole my like I said, my goal at 3D Printer Go Burr is to spread and promote the mass adoption of 3D printers, because I think, like I said, if we can put a 3D printer in every house, then all of these bad laws become just bad suggestions. Yeah, I'm sure you'd like to put one in every house, but I think if we can do it in one in every neighborhood, <laughs> right, like one or two in yeah. every neighborhood and it's on because. Like you say, grow your own food. You know I'm an advocate of that. But I'm also like, I have neighbors who are not going to grow their own food. But you know what that is for me? An opportunity. Right? Yeah. That's an opportunity. Absolutely. right? Like not everybody's going to do everything. So if we can get this distributed architecture that we use in, let's say, cryptocurrency into manufacturing, because that's what you're really talking about, a distributed architecture of manufacturing, so that I can make a product here instead of getting somebody in Hong Kong to make it or getting someone in Ohio to make it. And if you look at counter-economics, we've talked about this on the Goose Group, and someday I need to do a show, maybe coming back next year I'll do a show in-depth on Chapter 14 of the Permaculture Designer's Manual. But Mollison laid out an entire method by which to create local autonomy. And if you look at what he came up with, And now you look at things like 3D printing, CNC machines, and cryptocurrencies. What was an idea that seemed like a great idea, but kind of fanciful? Like, how are you going to set up a local bank with a bunch of farmers, right? That's not a credit union in their system. How would you, how would you do that in like 86 when he wrote that book? And the answer is, well, you, you really could. He had this idea with lets and you made your own little paper money or whatever. And But he had this whole mechanism of trade and how you decided, like, the trade is local, then it's semi-local, then it's regional, then it's global, and how that all worked together. But if you backfill those diagrams, those ideas, those outlines with 3D printing, CNC machines, cryptocurrency, and the other shit we're doing now, like, then it all actually, you can actually do it. It actually works. Yeah, and that's the whole thing. Like, I'm not familiar with the guy you're speaking about, but, you know, just having that initial idea of, you yeah. know, creating your own local bank, and then, you know, maybe his idea didn't work, but that, that idea stayed alive, and eventually somebody, and in this case, Satoshi Nakamoto, figured out how to do it, and I yeah. think that's, you know, that's the whole point of, of having a free competitive market and an and, and agora. You know, and, and to be fair, there were individual communities that followed that pattern and they made it work, but they couldn't sustain and they couldn't do it at scale. And when I say scale, obviously you don't scale globally because, well, then you're not local anymore. But what I mean is they couldn't do it to the scale where the average person in the community could get, you know, even half of what they needed and required and wanted from within that, that local autonomy. But I think it can be done now. I'm, you, you've got me thinking, talking about all this stuff today about like, 
maybe my, my shutdown, I might sit down and just reread 14 like five times over and keep backfilling it with this and come up with a whole like kind of architecture. How does this all fit together? Of course, our buddy uh, uh, Xavier says he's done that with Phyron, but, well, when it works, I'll, I'll look at it. <laughs> it's got to work, right? It's got to work. you got to have it. It's got to it's gotta do a thing. But I, I think that maybe, like, that actually, you know, Phyron may end up being the tool that you used to do this with. I, I really hope so. I, I, I mean, Xavier's a brilliant guy, and I, I want this thing, but it's not here. <laughs> i got to get him on. i got to learn more about Phyron because yeah. he's always telling me about it, but I still haven't wrapped my head around it 100%. I told him I'll have him back on as soon as it works. So that when he talks about yeah. it, people can go sign up and use it, right? Because like, yeah, right, exactly. That's like a yeah. guy that shows up and I got a book coming out in three months, and I'm like, well, okay, um, you should have booked three the months. Yeah, you should have booked the show in three months. But yeah, um, moving on from there, we, 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 you and I have a thing in common that I think many of the people in this audience have in common, and that is the thing that we probably see is the most valuable thing to humanity is liberty. That liberty is every, – because everything comes off of that. If you have liberty, then you can figure everything else out. What do you think in 2020 is the biggest obstacle to liberty? You mean 2021, the year ahead? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Now. Yeah, well, right? well, I guess my biggest concern is Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. I mean the, the threat that I'm always concerned about is, is the American state, but that's only because I'm subject to their to their rules. Um I'm really looking at these buybacks and these, I think what she, what she called them was voluntary mandatory buybacks or something like that. So I, I, I'm ready for that. Um, I'm, I'm concerned about it. And I, like I said, I think that 3D printers are the solution. In my opinion though, I think that all of these problems that we face, you know, you, you can sum them up by saying, yeah, it's, it's a loss of liberty, but really the real problem that we face is the Federal Reserve. If it wasn't for the Fed counterfeiting uh, money, then they wouldn't be able to afford any of the domestic nonsense that they, they promote, the surveillance state or the police state, the prison industrial complex. This stuff is expensive. They can't afford this. They can't afford to carry on wars and famines in Yemen uh, if they don't have the power to counterfeit currency. So I think that um, a lot of this coronavirus stuff ties into the Federal Reserve and their mismanagement of the global economy much more so than I think the mainstream media lets on. So I, I think that that is going to keep playing out over the next couple of years. Uh, the Fed is going, going to collapse. That bubble is going to pop. When it pops, we don't know, but we know that it will pop. Um, and I think that that's going to create more domestic uh, uh, problems for us. So, um, like I said, I think that's a lot of what is going on already with coronavirus. I think it's sort of just an excuse. Coronavirus is an excuse for uh, a lot of the uh, stimulus programs and stuff that they needed to put out anyway. So I think confiscations are coming, and I think that uh, inflation is coming. And I think you know the way to protect yourself on that is, again, become your own bank and get a 3D printer. I think that the real answer is... Well, first of all, let me agree. I, coronavirus is the gas on the fire. So if you have a fire raging and throw, somebody throws gas on it, it doesn't help you if you don't want the fire, and it helps you if you do. 
But the problem is the fire, not the gas. The fire was already there, and it was already consuming things, and if nobody was putting it out, it was going to burn the whole forest down, whether you threw the gas on or not, you just sped it up. And that's what I think COVID is for things like the Great Reset. It's the accelerant on the existing fire that was already burning. But I think our biggest obstacle to liberty is ourselves. And I, I, I don't include you and I and most of the people in this audience, but I include the majority, and I mean the vast majority of the American people and people in the Western world in general, that we have become a society of cowardice, obedient slaves. And that's why, you know, as long as I've been doing this and as big as my audience is, it's still relatively small compared to a, a lot of other podcasters in kind of this world because you, I, other people like us, we don't soft sell this. And, and, and we don't try to be all-inclusive because I don't want it, – it's not that I don't want those people to kind of wake up, unplug from the matrix, and join us. Until they do, I don't want them. They're not helpful. Right. They're not helpful. Like the reason there's a mask mandate is because people wear masks. I mean that, that's why there's a mask mandate because people do it. When people stop doing it, it stops being enforced, right? Like you can't and, – and who's in, who's doing the majority of the enforcement are what? Mass Karens, right? They're the ones running around shrieking and screaming at people. Um, it, it, it's more that than anything else. I've been amazed. You know, I'll walk into a store here, and if they're not going to refuse me service because that's – if I need something, like, damn it, okay, fine, I'll wear my mask because – I want the thing more than I want to non-comply, and you've refused me service. And that's something that's under their control. They can just say, you got to steal it because I'm not ringing it up. Okay, fine. If they're not pushing it that way, I just don't wear a mask. And I watch people look at me, look it around, and take their mask off. And then another person takes their mask off. And you, you, you walk into a store, and there's 50 people in it, and you walk out, 25 of them aren't wearing masks when you walk out because you didn't do it. And, like, the place I'll comply is a restaurant because, again, we're not going to seat you. Well, what am I going to do? I'm going to go take the table? Right? They're going to throw me out, right? But as long as they won't enforce their policy, I won't follow their policy. And when it comes to, like, these places, like, we don't really have – there's people that are just stupid and they're walking around outside a mile away from people with masks. I mean, just – they're idiots. Some of them are wearing, like, two masks driving a car by themselves. I, again, they're in the other category. But we don't have anybody harassing anybody about not wearing a mask outside or anything like that. In places like California and all, it's because people do it. And my understanding from people that live there is, well, that's what happens in L.A. That's what happens in San Francisco. Like, the rest of the state is not a full of lunatics, and they don't comply. So I think a lot of the, the biggest threat we have to liberty is the absolute, unconditional compliance with all this bullshit by the average person. And it's... It's way more than the majority, Sal. It's not just Democrats. I mean, I think they're more more susceptible to it. They're more conditioned to obedience than, than the right is. But there's plenty of freaking mass Karens on the right. There's tons of them. I see them all the time. You're absolutely right. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and it, it is this sort of blind obedience that has led us here. And the solution to that, the way to get out of that, is agorism, is counter-economics, is to sort of disobey, right? It's civil disobedience. You just stop complying with, with these tyrannical uh, uh, mandates. And, you know, I, I like what you said on the goose a while back. Be the gray man, right? Sort of yeah. blend into the background. You don't you don't need to stand out. You don't want to be the guy drawing attention to yourself. If you're going to go to the route of civil disobedience and noncompliance, blend into the background. Be the guy who gets lost into the crowd. 
Yeah, don't like there were guys back in like when gold was illegal that were like I don't remember who it was, but he took a picture of himself on like standing on an overpass with like a bar of gold chained to his arm and it was like arrest me, I dare you and stuff like that. You know, I'm glad there's people like that, but that's probably not the best way for people to be, you know. Um that's why I'm a big fan of having a legitimate business in the words of, you know, every organized crime TV show you've ever seen. You know, like Goodfellas or whatever. I got a legitimate business here. And 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 it that's a legitimate tactic that's been employed yeah. by, you know, so-called organized crime forever. Th th you have money flowing through something. Well, if you want to be able to leverage debt in certain situations, and I think we're going to change that to a degree with crypto, but there's things that you, if you want to buy a house, you got to get a mortgage. You have to have an income. You have an income, you have to pay taxes if it's an above board income. So if you structure a business properly, you kind of shelter yourself from a lot of gray market activity at the same time that could be going on or not. I don't know. Maybe you just, you know, know what I'm saying. Um, and at the same time, you have access to these things in this other world that they've created. And, and, and to me, like, well, then you're the good boy that does what you're supposed to do as far as the state's concerned, but you also maybe, you know, benefit other ways. There was a guy that my dad was good friends with in, uh, in Pennsylvania when I was a kid. He had an ice cream shop. And I'm like, it's kind of an odd thing. He's like, do you know how much money he makes because of that ice cream shop that has nothing to do with ice cream? Right, yeah. Right? And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, like he's selling cars out, out of the back lot and stuff like And it was all cash money. It was all cash money. And then you know, the, I, the store became a write-off for him. But that's the whole thing. With like, That's why Agoras promote I'm – so, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's why Agoras promote entrepreneurship. And a lot of people don't understand why we do that. Yeah. But that's a great that, – that's the exact reason right there, right? It, it's because entrepreneurship will enable you to sort of – it gives you more flexibility, right? You're, 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 much, you're much more well-positioned to minimize your tax burden and those of your employees and those of your customers much more so than you are in a regular – nine to five sort of, uh, uh, you know, wage sort of uh, situation. Well, I'm very famous for saying over and over again, the tax code is 10% of what you have to do and 90% of it is how you get out of it. And I'll get emails from people. Yeah. Well, how do I do that? And my first question is, do you own a business? No, then it's not, then I'm not talking to you. And I don't mean to be a yeah, dick. Absolutely. I'm just not like almost all the ways that you get out of it. There's a few things. There's some, you know, basic deductions that any accountant that passed a CPA exam could tell, you know, a homeowner how to use even with the changes and what have you. And, but when it comes down to, you know, the tax code literally is a, you know, this giant stack that you could kill somebody with as a blunt instrument. The 90% that tells you how not to do it is almost inevitably limited to specific types of investors and entrepreneurs. And it's amazing what becomes tax deductible to the creative entrepreneur. At one time, just to do it, just because I wanted to out of spite, I used to have a wine blog because I would buy a different bottle of wine every week and try that, that wine. I was doing tasting notes and all, and I'm like, you know, if I – this is back when people read regular Plano blogs. If I had a blog about this and I put Google AdSense ads on it, it would become a legitimate expense. So all of a sudden, my weekly bottle of new fine wine that I wanted to get tasting notes on, all I did was publish the tasting notes, run some advertising, and I could sit in front of an IRS agent today and say, yeah, that's where that deduction came from. That's why, and I did it for that reason. You know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter why I did it. It matters that I did it following their rules. And for instance, 
I was talking about cryptocurrency in my video today, and the IRS says that if I trade or you know fund one one crypto into another, that's a trade, and that I have to pay taxes on a gain. It's not like money where if I spend euros that happen to go up against the dollar, it doesn't count, right? But I I've not made every trade well. I I bought some Litecoin when it was really really expensive compared to where it is now. I've been holding it. I'm not sure why, but we're coming up at the end of a tax year. And if I happen to um, decide I don't want Litecoin anymore and I want something like Pirate Chain and I sell it into Pirate Chain and it creates a tax loss of $2,400, okay, that's a, that's an offsetting loss. Boom. And then the, the other side of it is now it became a privacy coin, so I still have it. It's invisible. So I followed your rules, yeah. and I think that's what we have to understand. Some of the rules are to your advantage to follow. Absolutely. And that's that's $2,400 they can't use to arrest your friends and family, your no. neighbor, stuff exactly. like that. Or they can't use overseas to, to, to bomb children or something like that. That's that's why it's so important. And, you know, to, not to, you know, I, you were talking about minimizing your tax burden, just to switch gears for a moment. I remember you had a caller on this show about a week or so ago who said something like, how can I, uh, you know, minimize my taxes using gold or silver? I think the question was, yeah, or crypto. And that's the whole thing is once you, you, every dollar converted into sound money that's not subject to a central banker's uh, whims or inflationary tendencies, that's a dollar that's protected from not only taxation, but the worst of all taxes, which is inflation, right? Because mm -hmm. it's a, a hidden form of taxation. People don't see it. And that's where the state gets the majority of, of their money from is, is taxation. So own your own business and convert as much of your assets as possible to gold and silver and cryptocurrency and be your own bank because that's how you, uh, you, you stop paying, you know, for, you can't stop paying taxes altogether. I can't tell you that because I'll go to jail. No. But that's how you minimize your tax burden to the greatest extent possible. Yeah, there's, there is, there is things that are untaxable even if they're supposed to be paid tax on. And I'll leave it at that because I don't want to be giving tax advice, et cetera. I'm not a CPA and CPAs have gone to, to, to federal prison for saying you don't have to pay yeah. taxes. You're right about that. Uh, former IRS agents have gone to federal prison for saying you don't have to pay your taxes, which is insane. Um, But what do you mean for people out there that maybe are not familiar with the term about being your own bank? How does one actually be one's own bank? Well, there's a couple aspects of it. First, you need uh, an efficient medium of exchange, right? And to me, I, I transact with cryptocurrency. I, I use Bitcoin Cash just because it's, uh, you know, basically instant to send a transaction. It's basically free to send a transaction, so it works for me. Um, and then, you know, you want to have some sort of asset that you can save your money in that's not going to be inflated away. And again, used for all the terrible things that we just said. So to me, uh, that's gold and silver, right? The only, the only really stable assets around today are gold and silver. People say, oh, well, Bitcoin's a store of value and stuff like that. But, you know, something at 10Xs or 100Xs, that's not a stable asset, right? That's not a store of value. That's an investment. So, Uh, I tell people to use crypto for exchange purposes, use gold and silver for saving uh, and replace it. Replace your savings account with a bar of gold or, or some silver coins. You know, yeah. the additional benefit here is small, you know, small denomination silver coins will be very useful in a shit hits the fan scenario. So I think it's great to have crypto, have some gold, have some silver. That's how you do it. That's how you become your own bank and sort of remove yourself, unbank yourself from this whole corrupt 
system. You know, who wants to bail out Goldman Sachs again? Do you want to buy Jamie Dimon's next yacht? I don't. I certainly don't. No, no. I don't want to do that, and I don't want to pay for bombs to be dropped on children. Right? Like, right. And, and this is what the other thing I've always said is, is so universal about agorism is no matter who you are, if you, if you are a human being with a brain and an IQ over about 75 and can evaluate what your government does, some of it you find reprehensible. Like all the way to the left, all the way to the right, in the middle, whatever, there's, if you ask anybody, diehard socialist Democrat, upstanding conservative, you know, right wing, uh, you call them a right wing nut if you want to. Is there anything our government does you find reprehensible? Yes. Well, then you should resist it. Right? Then you should resist that thing. And you're not going to resist that by electing somebody new next time because they're going to keep doing all the shit that you don't want them to do no matter what. The only way you can resist it is deny them your contribution to it, which you, you pay through tax, and you pay not just in direct tax, but you mentioned inflation, but you also pay, pay it by your participation in their system. You being there. That's why they don't care that half the people don't pay taxes because they're still contributing to the system by being in it. And so most of us can't fully exit, but the more you exit, the more you deny them. And, and I've always said, like, the only way we'll win in this in the end, where we get the vast majority of people to think this way, is to not play their game. We can't win their game. Like, that's where you see, like, some, some guy that's a boxer that's like 180 go against a 120-pound chick that's in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yeah. But, yeah. but he doesn't get the, they don't get the box, right? He has to go do jiu-jitsu, which he's never done. And, and the chick has been like, in, she's like a blue belt. She's been in jiu-jitsu for like 12 years. And she kills the guy. They say, see, jiu-jitsu is better. Put boxing gloves on her. Look at two of them standing in a ring and see what happens, right? And so you don't go to your enemy with the game they're good at. So what we need to be doing is operating in this, these parallel systems to the point where the example is attractive. And that makes people want to be part of it. And, and I think that's the only way that we have any chance of success. And whether we'll ever fully succeed or not, I don't know. I, 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 I look at things that are seven generational uh, movements is it's the six generations issue. Like all I can do is the best I can where I'm at now to push things in that direction. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I, I think it's going to play out as Konkin did, uh, as he said it was going to play out in the New Libertarian Manifesto or in the way that J. Neil Shulman lays out in Alongside Night. I'm, I'm a pure Konkinite in that sense. I think that with the state will get more and more oppressive and think more things will be restricted and fall under their uh, control and their authority. And as that happens, they're going to drive more people just by sheer necessity and economic incentive alone. They'll be driven into the black and gray markets. Um, you know, we see that already in places like New Mexico, right, where they're closing down grocery stores. Well, how do people get their food? You have to transact in the black and gray markets. On Thanksgiving, every turkey that was sold in New York or California was a part of the gray market. I think that's a really? thing. I think that's a yeah. Well, I mean, they what? I mean, well, I didn't I know anything about turkey, that. How how'd that work out? I, I want to know more. Tell me more. <laughs> so I so I I probably I shouldn't say every turkey, but okay. every let's say every twenty five pound turkey, right? Okay. Because what you could have only ten people. Yeah. So any you know any anybody who had more than ten people and they were feeding those people. Okay. Th that the mere act of purchasing that those that food and those supplies 
that is agorism, right? And, and as the state does these things, as they start to impose on every little aspect of our life, more people will be driven to participate in agorism without even knowing it. So once they realize, and, and, and the few who do understand the philosophy, um, I think that, uh, you know, the future really belongs to those people. They're going to be the ones who write the future history books. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And, you know, that kind of brings me back to gold and silver a little bit here as, as we get ready to wrap up. I agree with you that it's a great store of value. I have taught people to keep 5% to 10% of their net wealth in silver and or gold since I started doing this show. And as cryptocurrency came on the scene, I was not an instant convert. It, it did take me till about 2014 to finally go, I get it now. I get how it's secure. I get how it prevents from counterfeit. I get how it's superior as a form of payment to silver and gold. And I think the two have to somehow work together. Because if I want a 3D printer and you want money, and I want to pay you in silver, it is not convenient for me to be in Texas and you to be in Florida and us to do business that way. It's heavy. It's bulky. There's some risk associated with it um, from either side of payment versus receipt. A cryptocurrency can be executed if I didn't know you, didn't trust you with a smart contract so that I get my thing before you get your money, but you know you get your money when I get my thing. Like we, There's all kinds of ways to handle that. And cryptocurrency, to me, is going to be more the means of commerce when people can't look each other in the eye, which is the majority of commerce and going to be the majority of commerce. That means we got to get people to use it. What do you think it's going to take? to get mass adoption of cryptocurrency. Because I'm amazed that I still have people, when I talk about it, going, it's tulip mania. It's like, oh, my God. Where did yeah. you come from? What rock did you come out from? What is wrong with you? Like, we've been doing this for freaking a decade and a half now. This, this, this giant explosion or being hacked or crashing, like, it, it's not here. And, and, and it, this willful ignorance of it. And I think part of it is people can't grasp how it works. Like, It's actually the same thing as, it's totally different, but it's the same thing as uh, fractional reserve. It's so simplistic, the mind is repelled by it. Like, it can't be that easy when it actually is. What, what is it going to take to get people to, like, I don't even know mass adoption. Let's just say, you know, 20% of people using it. Well, to me, you know, the way I see it, right, is the whole point of cryptocurrency is to have a peer-to-peer Currency, right? You, you know, we can't make that transaction in silver because we're so far away. We're not face to face. We could do that transaction using a trusted third party, right? We could hire someone to say, yeah, uh, Spirico sent this amount of gold and Sal sent a 3D printer and so on and so forth. That's what we do with dollars using Visa and banks and PayPal. Cryptocurrency enables us to have secure transactions that are not face to face uh, in a peer to peer fashion. That's the whole power of it. Um, And I think, you know, a lot of guys like Peter Schiff who are screaming tulip mania and this and that, they, what they get right is that the old clunky blockchains don't comply with a lot of the economic theories laid out by the great economists like Karl Menger, Ludwig von Mises, and Murray Rothbard. When we read what these guys write, they tell us, you know, you need to have a saleable currency. What they say is, Only the most saleable commodity will remain as money. So we know that in order to have adoption, we have to have the most saleable commodity out there. 
And they, in Menger, Carl Menger lays out a, a whole list of criteria that we can use to determine the saleability of a commodity. And in my mind, uh, it's, you know, it's a subjective sort of thing, but in my mind, when I look at that criteria, the most saleable commodity we have today is Bitcoin Cash. So I think it's not necessarily about convincing people to use these currencies. I think it's just by economic incentive alone, they're going to be driven to do it. Um, why would you hold dollars if, if you're going to lose money if, when you can hold cryptocurrency and you know that you're going to gain money? Right? It doesn't make any sense, right? So I'm not really concerned about convincing people. I'm really concerned about creating the economic incentives to, to bring them into the fold. You, you know what I mean? Does that make any sense? No, it makes perfect sense. It, it makes absolute sense. And I, I think that I think that the number one thing you can get people to do, buy a little bit and spend it. Like, I always tell people, like, don't worry about no KYC at first. Don't try to be Jason Bourne or whatever. Like, go buy a couple hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin on a site like Coinbase, right? Um, please use my referral so I get my 10 bucks and you get your 10 bucks. But, you know, um, and then take that money. Send it, get a Coinami wallet, an Exodus wallet, Jack's wallet, I don't care. I, I recommend Jack's because I'm familiar with it. And so if somebody asks me, like, how does this work, I know. Um, but, yeah, just get a good wallet, send yourself some money, maybe transfer it into some Bitcoin cash or some other form, and then pay for shit you were going to pay for anyway that you can pay for with cryptocurrency. And, and I'm doing that for the same reason that I would take my neighbor who's like, I don't know about guns. I mean, I'm not really opposed to them, but, you know, I don't really own any, and I, you know, I kind of worry, and, and I, well, let's go to the range. Right? I want to put a gun in that person's hand. I want to teach them how to safely use it. I want to show them how to make sure that they're not going to kill anybody or hurt themselves with it, certainly not me. I want them to shoot it. I want, to feel, I want them to feel the power that comes from holding and using a gun. And I don't just mean the raw power of a primer hitting powder, hitting an accelerant, hitting a, a slug and shooting it out of barrel, because that's cool. But the power in, wait a minute, if I master this thing, I can protect myself and my family safely. There actually is just a dangerous thing that I can learn to use safely. That's the exact same reason I want somebody to get a hundred freaking dollars worth of Bitcoin and pay for something with it. Because it's no longer a theory. It is now a thing. It's now a current. It's now a power. And people, this is why politicians are dangerous. People don't like to give up power. You ever notice that? That's how, when somebody has a power, they don't want to give it up. Well, you can either have a power for evil or you can have a power that's self-empowering. And so I want to get people to use it just because once they feel it, I think that's that's all, like, once that happens, that person is going to continue to use that, and they're going to see any attempt to take it away personally. It's not just an abstract theory. Like, that's why I want my next-door neighbor to buy a gun, because once somebody starts talking about banning guns, wait a minute, I own a gun. Where a lot of people that are opposed to it, but they don't own guns, they're like, eh, well, maybe it would be better. You see what I'm saying? And that's what's so important about, you know, the work that you and, and uh, Xavier and John Bush and Nicole and Pete and everybody else, all the Agoras content creators, that's what's so important about the work that they're doing is introducing people to these concepts. You know, like you said, you don't have to be a master. You don't have to, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to be Ivan the Troll tomorrow if you get into 3D printing <laughs> today. But that's all right. That's, yeah. You don't have to be, right? As long as you get used to the technology and you get a feel for it, that's what's important. And like you said, you can spread it to your friends and your family and your neighbors. And that's, that's how the counter economy grows. 
So, Sal, this has been a great discussion. We're well over an hour now, so let's kind of wrap. But let's let's tell people, how can they find out more about you, get a 3D printer from you, find your podcast, all that good shit? Oh, man. All right. So 3D printer go burr, B-R-R-R dot com. Is, uh, you can buy crypto, uh, buy 3D printers and supplies for cryptocurrencies. Um, I've got salvigoras.com, which is uh, just my own personal site. I have a few T-shirts and stuff for sale. I've got a blog over there. My podcast is posted there. I'm on all your social media outlets, whatever platform you're using. You can find me. It's usually just Sal Mayweather or at Sally Mayweather. I'm not a, not a hard guy to get a hold of. So I try to make myself as accessible as possible. Cool, man. Well, hey, I appreciate you being with us today, Sal. It's a great discussion as always. And I definitely recommend that people check out your stuff. And I said this during the intro, and I'll repeat it again here. If you want to get a 3D printer, you can get one for a few bucks less somewhere else. But if you want to do it with no KYC and deal with somebody who will take cryptocurrency and, uh, you know, this is another thing I said, Sal, about know your customer. Most companies, they know their customer, right? You Like, if I order something from you, you have to have some way to know where to send it. But when people say know your customer from a government angle, what they're saying is it's not you knowing your customer. It's you knowing your customer in a way where we can compel you to tell us who they are. And, exactly, and, and, yeah. and if you value that, then the only way you can really vote in this world, and it's always been the case, is how you act and where you spend your money and your time. And if you believe that is an inherent right, then if it costs a little more to do business that way, then that's the cost of doing business the right way. And so I really recommend if people want to get into 3D printing, they check out your website for that as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And, you know, we take Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, and Ethereum, and we hope to be adding more. I want to, I'd like to add as many currencies as possible. I just, you know, it's hard to find payment processors for a lot of these yeah. different altcoins. You know, I've always got people saying, hey, will you take this, you know, random coin? I'm saying, yeah, but how do I accept the payment? So, uh, you know, hopefully. Yeah, how you do it? You, you email them and say, here's an address, send it to me. That's what I do. I'm. If it's a hundred orders a week, if it's a hundred orders a week, it's something. But I mean, if it's a dozen, it's it's a chance to talk to your customer. You get to know your customer. You have a personal, you know, relationship. And if you don't want the currency, just have them send it to an NY, a, K, a no KYC exchange, right? Get them an address from there that you have an account on, and immediately convert it to what you want. Yeah, you know, I I, I think it's funny though because a lot. Of, I mean, at least once a day. Somebody will say, "Hey, why don't you accept Digibyte, or why don't you accept this?" I say, "Okay, yeah. yeah. How do I how, how do I do it?" Oh, I don't know. Well, then no, <laughs> no, that's different. That's different. But if they, if my question is all: Will you accept? Do you want to buy? Yes. Okay, then I do. Because I'll figure, right, yeah. I'll figure it out. Like you know, CoinX or Trade Ogre or somebody's going to have it. Yeah. So then you just have them yeah, basically. Right. They do. They deposit to your account on the exchange if you don't want to hold. That that's how I do that. Right, and I tell people, if you do have some weird currency like that, send me a DM, email me, yeah. we'll, we'll work it out, we'll figure it out. Yeah. I got finance. There are, just so you know, because you use WordPress, there are plugins that are completely independent of payment processors. Yeah, but they all suck. What, like, what, oh. what's, the, what's, what's a good one? I, I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but there's one that's the, the, the Pirate Chain guy recommended when he was on. I'll look it up for you and send it to you. And... Uh, Apparently, lots of people use it. Check that out. There's no KYC. It's between you and them. Now, I don't know if it integrates with your, you know, 
you're shipping or something, or you have to do something manually there. But right, you know, right. So that that would be the holdup. Yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'll try to get that information for you. I'll have to because yeah. people have been asking about it, and I can't. I, it was one of those things I made a note and I deleted it, and so it's not in the resources for that episode. And I can't remember what it is, but it's a plug, and it basically it, it does almost every crypto, and you just plug an address in, and it works. Yeah, be sure to send it to me. I could use it. All right, man. Well, again, thanks for being with us today. Well, great interview. Again, I really enjoy talking to Sal. He's just a good dude, and uh, it's part of why we asked him to join us over at Unloose the Goose. And if you have not been tuning into the Unloose the Goose podcast, you should. And I, I know how many people download this podcast and how many people download Unloose the Goose. And while Unloose the Goose has become dramatically se successful, dramatically fast for a once-a-week podcast, I know that the number of downloads TSP gets compared to Unloose the Goose is uh, it's kind of monumental in the opposite direction. So you might want to check it out. We've been having some some really good shows. We, we, we've, we've gotten through some things and developed more chemistry and, and a better dynamic. Most of us are podcasters. In fact, all of us are podcasters at the Goose Group, but we've all Uh, mostly podcasted kind of one-on-one -on -one interviews and individually. So it's taken us a while to kind of gel as a larger group and deal with having six people or four people on a panel at the same time. But I think we're getting a lot better at it, and we're getting a lot done, and we'd love to have you over there. Again, the website, unloosethegoose.com. And uh, remember, Sal's podcast is called The Agora. You can find it on iTunes and Stitcher and all the uh, podcast distribution services. It's really, really good, and I think you would enjoy it as well, especially if you enjoyed what Sal had to say today. And remember, man, if you guys want to do business, Uh, with Sal, his website, 3D Printer Go Burr, B-R-R-R, uh, is, is a great, uh, way to get a, a 3D printer and start putting that into your life with no KYC. And I, I go back to on, on Know Your Customer that, you know, there's very few co companies that don't actually know their customer, right? They don't, they don't have, the ability to ship you a product or to deliver you a product, especially a physical product, unless they know who you are. So KYC is really not about a company knowing its customer. It's about a company knowing its customer in a permanent way, which can always be reported at the behest or force behind government. And the only way that you can have a situation where you can own something freely and independently without that is to do business with a company that commits to it. It's the only way. So... Yes, you can get a 3D printer, like Sal says, for, you know, 10% less on Amazon. Or you can deal with a small business person and do no KYC with something that maybe you would want people to not be able to prove you have. Just saying. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, one of the ways you can help support this show and the work that we do is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Coming down to the crunch time on Christmas shopping, but I'm sure a lot of you still have things to pick up for people. Amazon's a great way to do it, to stay out of the stores and uh, not be forced to wear a mask and run around with a bunch of maniacs. I, I don't like shopping in stores to begin with, especially around Christmas time. I mean, I am pretty upset with a lot of things that have been shut down or controlled uh, with the pandemic. But, you know, not going to stores is something that's pretty old hat for me. Um, I, I've always said if, if my, my property was about three times larger and had a two-acre lake on it, I don't know if I'd ever leave at all. Anyway, um, today's item of the day, though, is fermented vegetables. Uh, creative recipes for fermenting 64 vegetables and herbs and crowds, kimchis, brine, pickles, chutneys, rel relishes, and pastes. And it is by Christopher and Kristen Shockey. This is kind of, to me, if you want to get into doing fermentation of vegetables, the 
most approachable, easiest to follow, and yet most in-depth in variety of recipes resource you can get. If you have someone in your life that wants to do this or kind of makes a little bit of sauerkraut but would like to do other things or what have you, this would be a fantastic gift. Um, I have this in my personal library. I do not have a lot of books in my personal library anymore, physical books. I've gone mostly to electronic. Uh, people that have come to my workshop can tell you that almost every workshop, there's a pretty big stack of books. And then there's a statement, like, if you want any of these books, take them. And if you don't, we're going to be donating them or whatever because we've kind of moved to some minimalism at least a little bit in our lives. And one place we've been able to do that easily is with books. There are certain books, however. There are books that, you know, I love them because they're more of a collectible to me, like the stuff that I, the originals I have by like Robert Rourke and James Capstick and, 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 uh, and some others. Um, and then there are books that just, they just work better as a book book than an electronic book. And to me, cookbooks, recipe books, guidebooks, often that's how they work better. And so Fermented Vegetables by Christopher and Kristen Shockey is one of those. Uh, I definitely recommend that you check it out. And I definitely recommend that you add fermented foods to your diet. Um, you know, one of the, the seminal works that have taught us um, – more about nutrition is the work of Dr. Weston Price. And Dr. Weston Price went throughout the world examining the remnants of indigenous societies. And he found that, and this is before we decided to start feeding them our gruel, and if you look at the work of Weston Price, you see a lot of evidence for low-carbohydrate, high-protein animal diet But you also find a great deal of, uh, in fact, in every indigenous society, having at least one fermented food that was a staple in their diet. And this, so that, that is a way that, and if you think about it, the, 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 the people that he investigated were incredibly diverse, incredibly far apart, and had no means of communication with each other. Yet they all developed this independently of each other, and they all were remarkably healthy. So it might just be a way that humans are supposed to live, or at least the way that we co-evolved with these microbes to live uh, with. So check out the book, and uh, even if you're not going to, get on some online resources. Uh, Wild Fermentation by Sandra Katz is another great resource. You know, Make this part of your life. It's really easy to do. There's some specialized equipment that makes it a little easier, but you really don't need anything other than salt, water, and a jar. I mean, when it comes down to it, that's that's pretty much what you need. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day today. This was a song I was uh, I was happy to see, but I was kind of surprised to see in, in a list of songs getting this late in the year toward Christmas time, because uh, it doesn't just really have anything to do with this time of year. Uh, but it, I think it does have a lot to do with maybe 2020 and having to be away from people you love. This song is called Broken, and it's by Seether, and uh, it co-featured Amy Lee as uh, co-vocals on it. Uh, this song, I actually first came across this song years and years ago on the reality TV show um, American Idol when Chris Daughtry covered it. Uh, and I was like, I really like this song and dug into it and found out, you know, the background of it. And, and this song is not, I, I don't think it's what people think it is. I think people listen to the lyrics of this song, especially with Amy Lee singing, you know, uh, in, in it as well. And she has awesome vocals, by the way. Um, And they think it's like the end of a relationship, like a romantic relationship. And it certainly could be. 
But but the lead singer of Seether, who wrote the song, wrote it for his daughter when he was leaving South Africa. She was two and a half years old to come to the United States. So it wasn't about being broken by the end of a relationship. It was about being broken for a time by a separation that you knew eventually would end. Right? That's why, you know, holding your picture serves him well. Right? And so there was, this is not the end. This is a separation. And I think a lot of us have dealt with that separation from loved ones this year, either prolonged or simply circumstantial. It's, it's more difficult to travel, more inconvenient. Maybe we just didn't see people as much as we'd want to, even if we were willing to. And even if we were able to, uh, from a standpoint of legality, we were just in, impaired by it. A lot of people, I think, because of the restrictions, though, are completely prevented from this. And I think one of the reasons that we are going to have such a dark winter in 2020 going into 2021 is this separation coupled with this massive amount of evictions you're about to see. Now, that's something we haven't talked about. Maybe we should before the year ends up. But this is going to be a hard time for people, and I think there's going to be a lot of people that feel this way. Hopefully you've been practicing the things that we teach. You've built your life more resilient so that it can't be broken. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast.